0: Well, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the gospel according to Luke. And we are in chapter 5 once again this morning. Luke chapter 5. Continuing to learn about Jesus in his ministry in Galilee in the northern section of Israel. Jesus spent uh, much time there, about a year and a half it seems, of his public ministry that we cover in chapters 4 through 9 of the gospel according to Luke. And we're learning about one event that took place in that time period this morning in Luke chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. So Jesus, having called some disciples to follow him, Peter and James and John, is going around through the various cities in Galilee. And we read about what happens in one of those cities here in these verses. Luke chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. While he was in one of the cities, behold... There was a certain, or there was a man covered with leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And he stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing. Be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he ordered him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, just as Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But the news about him was spreading even farther, and large crowds were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. No one likes to get sick, no one likes to get sick. Maybe that's a little bit too strong of a statement. Perhaps there are times when you enjoy a good sick day from work, or being able to cancel all your plans and just get under a blanket, drink or eat some chicken soup and maybe turn on the TV. So maybe there are some uh, fringe benefits to getting sick, but no one likes sickness in and of itself. On top of this, there are many occasions, as we've learned all too well over the past few years, when getting sick has other ramifications, namely not being able to be around other people, missing the human contact that we all so earnestly long for in many ways. And here in Luke chapter 5, we find an occasion where someone was in just this circumstance. They were sick. And therefore unable to be around other people. But not just for a few hours or a few days. Not with the hope that maybe they would be able to, you know, have their immune system, get them better. And then their time of self-isolation or quarantine would be over. But one whose condition left them in a state where there was really no hope. Where there didn't seem to be any way out of the circumstances And where in addition to the physical illness, what this meant was that they were isolated from society, from everything that mattered. And in addition to this, being isolated from God's people, from the worship of God publicly in the place where he had told people that they were to worship him, from all that had to do with the in-person interaction and religious function of society. Here is a man who had basically lost everything but his life. And Jesus enters into this man's life, it seems as a coincidence, but of course we know, in the will and the sovereignty of God. And Jesus shows grace to this man, as only he can do. And in this account, Jesus shows his care and his supernatural power. Both of these on display through healing a man whose disease had taken him out of the community Of God's people. That is, Jesus heals a leper, a man with leprosy. And in so doing, again, he shows his care for this man and his supernatural power through healing him of a disease which had taken him out of the community of God's people. Again, the setting is Jesus going through Galilee and it says while he, was going, while he was in one of the cities is when this took place. And there are two major sections of uh, this passage before us this morning. The first regards what he actually does in this miracle. And then the second refers to the response that is given not only by this man but by the people all around. And so we'll look at it in that way. We begin by looking at verses 12 through 14 where we find this event where Jesus heals a man of leprosy. He heals a man of leprosy. And in verse 12, we find this leper. There was a man, behold, there was a man covered with leprosy. The first thing that happens in this passage is that a leper pleads with Jesus. He pleads with Jesus. Let's look at his situation He is covered in leprosy. This leprosy is, as most of you know, a disease of. The skin, or at least something that would show on the skin. Uh, one particular specific form of leprosy would have to do also with the nervous system and with things that would uh, would would deaden that system as well. Uh, it's likely that the leprosy that was referred to during the time of Jesus, which would have taken place, uh, which would have occurred in many different people, as we constantly see him running into lepers. Uh, could have covered a whole range of similar diseases, of skin diseases, but these diseases would have been visible to other people, and they would have caused the kinds of reaction and the kind of action that took place in response to them that kept them out of society. Now, here Luke emphasizes that he is covered with leprosy. Literally, he is full of leprosy, which means not only is he suffering from this physically, but he can't hide it. And it massively affects him. It affects him every day, all day long. Now, the Old Testament, if you read through it... uh, Had regulations for leprosy. And in fact, this may be the very section where many of your well intentioned Bible reading plans have gone to die Leviticus chapter 13 and chapter 14. Because you begin reading through that and you say, wow, that's a lot to do with something that I've never even thought about. I have a hard time picturing. And what are all these regulations and checks and things like that for leprosy? And what you had in Leviticus 13 is a number of ways where someone would examine themselves for leprosy by going to the priest. And the priest would check the leper and see: do you have this kind of spot? And is it this color? And has it gone below the skin? And is, has the hair turned this color? And all of these different things that are involved in checking to see whether this person is ready or not to be made ceremonially clean. In Leviticus 13, there were lots of periods of isolation involved. There would would be seven-day periods at a time where if you showed some sign of leprosy, you would have to be isolated for seven days. And then you come back and then seven more days. So people were, if they had even the first signs of this, isolated from other people. They had to quarantine themselves. Leviticus 14 then spoke of what to do when the leprosy would go away when it was no longer there. And the offering that was to be made at the sanctuary once this took place, which would make them not only clean of a disease and clean physically in that regard, but would make them ceremonially clean so that they could then be involved with God's people and in the worship of God. There were even laws, as you may know, concerning a home that had been defiled by leprosy. Now, in these laws, in Leviticus 13, verses 45 and 46, there is this instruction. As for the leper who has the infection, his clothes shall be torn, and the hair of his head shall be uncovered. And he shall cover his mustache and cry, what? Unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean all the days during which he has the infection. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. So, he is supposed to go out of the society of God's people, away from where everyone lived. This would then lead not only to a terrible physical situation, but a terrible social situation as well. Now, leprosy understandably had to be dealt with in this way because many of these diseases could be transmitted to other people. And though it was brutal for the person who had it, they were to be kept outside the camp. Now, in addition to this, there could have been some people who even viewed that kind of uncleanness in connection with sin in some way because sometimes ceremonial uncleanness was connected with sin. So it may have even caused some suspicions on the part of people. Either way, there was a stigma and there was instruction for them to be removed from the everyday function of society. To be a leper was to be an outcast. And put yourself in those shoes for a moment even just put yourself in the shoes of what it means to be an outcast in general many of us maybe most of us even all of us know what it's like to be on the outside looking in in social situations everybody seems to be friends and you just can't break into that circle no one wants to talk to me no one's willing to respond when they talk to me or is there something that's on my face that makes everybody keep ignoring ignoring me or looking at me strangely or maybe I showed up at a formal event wearing something very informal or maybe I showed up at an informal event wearing something very formal there are all kinds of ways where we are outside the in group and we, we understand a little bit of what it's like to not be welcomed and to have to just be on our own. It's a very difficult situation. Add to this if the cause is something that is a disease where you have no certainty that it would ever go away. We know what it's like to be outcast. We know what it's like to be sick. But this man had it on a very, very high level. It had, it had cost him basically everything. So consider this man's desperate state. This is where he found himself. He's living life. Perhaps he has even gotten to the point of hopelessness. Nothing will ever change. I'll never be able to go worship at the temple again. I'll never be able to be around my family again. I'll never have friends again. I am all alone, and I don't get to do anything meaningful with my entire life. Does God care about someone in such a situation? He absolutely does. And he shows that through what Jesus does. That's the man's situation. Let's look at his request. What is his request? Well, it says, when he saw Jesus, when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. This leper is suffering from a physical disease. He's all alone. He's an outcast. No one's going to be around him. No one can be around him. And there's no end in sight till his misery until, until Jesus comes to town. And Jesus shows up in this city with the word about him having been spreading. Back in chapter 4, verse 37, the report about him was spreading into every locality in the surrounding district. Verse 42, when day came, Jesus left and went to a secluded place and the crowds were searching for him. Jesus is growing very popular. Everyone is looking for him. They want to be with Jesus. The word is spreading. The the fact that Jesus can heal diseases and cast out demons is not lost on people. And no doubt this man knows about it as well. So when Jesus shows up in town, he knows Jesus can make me clean. He knows the question is not Jesus' ability, but rather Jesus' willingness. And now he hasn't just heard about Jesus, but He sees him, and when he sees him, he lays it all on the line. He falls on his face and implores him. Implore is maybe not a word that we use very often, but it is a word that uh, you understand what it means. It means to strongly plead with someone, to beg, to beg them. It's not just a simple asking, you know, hey, Jesus, if you've got time, you think you could stop by later and, you know, heal my disease? He falls down on his face and he pleads with him, Lord Jesus, make me clean. And this is what he says. If you are willing, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, I mentioned earlier that there is a ceremonial cleansing that the book of Leviticus Leviticus talked about when you are... Free from leprosy. And that, that's a certain type of cleansing. But here he's referring to making him clean from the leprosy itself. Uh, the ceremonial aspect would come later on. He's saying, you can actually remove this disease from me. The direct issue. You can make me not have leprosy anymore. And he understands that Jesus can do this. And so he asks him, and look at what he says. I want you to think about this for a minute. He says, if you are willing... If you are willing, and he implores him. If you're willing, and he implores him. I want to think about, for a moment, the way that we approach the Lord when we have something that we want from him. Because this man has a request that was answered. And is set forth as someone who showed faith in the right kind of ways. And as someone who was properly humble before the Lord. So what is it that he asked and how does he go about this? Well, he goes and he recognizes that it does depend upon the willingness of the Lord. It does depend upon whether or not Jesus wills to do this. But notice, he does not simply leave it up to Jesus' will alone. He doesn't say to Jesus, if you are willing, and so just do whatever you want. Notice the elements of this man's word toward Jesus. He shows a strong expression of faith in Jesus' ability. He recognizes that Jesus is able to answer the prayer. And we do this when we go to God in prayer. We say, God, we know that you can do this. We know that you can do this. He also shows a recognition that Jesus has the right to decide what he does. So Jesus is the one who gets to decide yes or no as the answer to prayer. He is the one who determines that. But here's where we stop short very often in our own prayers, in what we ask of God, but this man does not stop short in, which is a plea that the Lord would do what he is able to do. He is pleading with him about something. He's not just saying, God, I know you're able, and I'm going to let you do what you want, and I'm recognizing your sovereignty. He goes further than that, and he says, not just do this if you're willing, but he says, Jesus, please be willing. Please be willing to do this. Yes, I know that it, uh, it comes down to if you are willing. But he's asking him to do it. He doesn't just stop. This is what imploring does. All too often in our prayers, we think wrongly about this. Um, and it's a mistake that's regularly made by people who have a high view of God's holiness, a high view of God's sovereignty, um, a low view of their own motives, and, and a right understanding of our own sinfulness and how easy it is to ask for things that are displeasing to God. And we can very easily say, you know, I'm probably asking for the wrong things, and God knows best. And so, therefore, I'm just going to kind of leave it in his court and say, God, w- whatever you want to do, I'm just, I'm okay with that like I kind of want something but I don't want to ask too strongly because if I do I'm going to mess up somehow what you were planning to do it's almost like we're afraid of ruining God's plans of messing up his will by asking him for things that we think that we want or that we should ask for so we know that God is in charge we know that God can act however he wants we have a high view of his sovereignty a high view of God's freedom but we take that freedom and we run too far with it And we run right into a wall. And we don't consider what else scripture says along with it. And we forget that the same sovereign Lord who can do whatever he wants has laid down as something else that he wants for us to bring our requests to him in prayer. And to ask earnestly for things that we think are pleasing to him and would be for our benefit. Just by way of example, Moses... When God told him on Mount Sinai, leave me alone so that I destroy these people, Moses didn't say, okay, whatever you say, God. He says, no, you can't do that. That doesn't align with the promises that you have made. And he prayed to God and he pleaded with him and God answered and turned from what he said that he was going to do against Israel. The Apostle Paul implored the Lord Jesus three times that the thorn in the flesh might leave him. And he only stopped when Jesus literally spoke to him and told him, "My grace is sufficient for you." Jesus Himself said to keep praying and not lose heart. And He illustrates this by referring to an unrighteous judge who gives what is asked for to uh, to a widow, and who listened to her just because she got annoyed, or he got annoyed with her for asking so many times. And He says, "If." someone will do that, then surely a gracious God who wants to hear us, wants us to pray earnestly and not to lose heart. And so when the Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, later in his life on earth, said to God, if there's another way, can you make this happen? And then said, not my will, but yours be done. It wasn't indifference to what God would do. It wasn't a standalone prayer of God, just whatever you will. Rather, it was an acknowledgement that even though he wanted something really, really badly, the bigger picture desire of Jesus was that he would submit to whatever the Father determined would happen in response to that prayer. But we shouldn't come to the Lord and say, well, I'm just going to kind of throw things out there very lightly and hope that God kind of gets the hint or hope that it's already in his plans Instead, we take after Daniel in Daniel 9:19, 9, who said, "O oh Lord, hear, O oh Lord, forgive, O oh Lord, listen and take action. That's the way we need to ask for things. And so a proper view of our place before the Lord does not forbid us from strongly begging and pleading with God to do something that we want Him to do. This is the way that we ought to pray. And we shouldn't worry that we're going to trample upon God's sovereign will, which, in fact, he brings about very often through the earnest pleas of his people. So God is free to say no if he wants to. He can he's not going to be intimidated by your prayer into doing something that he shouldn't do. You can ask freely within what the scripture says and from your heart the thing that you want God to do, you should beg and plead for and defer and please him with your response whatever turns out to be the case. But we're not just free to ask We are instructed to do so. The real evidence, to summarize this, is really the real evidence of whether we are submissive to God's will, and God's sovereign will, is not found in failing to ask for something or not asking for something. Rather, it's found in how we respond when we see the way that he answers us. So I wonder, when you ask the Lord for things, how do you ask him? How do you go to him? Are you timid? Uh, do you hold back on the things that you want to ask for, even if there's nothing in his word that says otherwise? Are you worried about messing up God's will? Do you hold back from asking him what you want because you're afraid it will come across as pushy, or maybe you'll mess up God's plans in some way? Or do you follow the example of this man who implored the Lord Jesus to please make him clean? This man then shows his humility when he comes before Jesus. Notice he calls him Lord This title of great respect and honor. He falls on his face before him and begs him. He exalts Jesus' ability to cleanse him. And he does express a willingness to defer to his will. He says, Jesus, the ball is in your court. I know at the end of the day, this is your decision to make. And out of this humility, he speaks to Jesus and he begs him and says, you can fix my problem. You can fix my disease. You can fix my position in society you can change all of this God please do this Lord Jesus please make me clean and so what does Jesus do would he be willing we know he's able would he be willing and we find in verse 13 that Jesus grants his request Jesus grants his request he stretched out his hand and touched him the uh parallel passage to this in Mark chapter 1 verse 41 notes something even before he does this it tells us about Jesus that he was moved with compassion moved with compassion Jesus looked at this man and he saw his plight he considered his situation he looked at how this man was suffering both physically and socially he sees what this man has been through and he looks upon it in his hardship and before he even does this he feels for the man genuinely feels for the man he is bothered by the fact that he's suffering in this way Jesus did not come simply as a robot to heal people and to do what God said Jesus came into this world and he sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. We learn this in the book of Hebrews, that this was part of him becoming man, was so that he could really even understand these things, in particular our temptations. And of course, it's not that this is the first time that the Son of God has ever experienced compassion just when he became man, because he also is a God who is compassionate and gracious, that he is compassionate and shows mercy toward those who fear him. So this is simply who he is as God, but it's also who he is in an even more identifiable way as the God-man. When he comes and he looks upon this man and he is moved with compassion. This is the way that we should see people in their plight. And so, seeing this man here, he looks at him and he touches him. He touches him. From his compassion, Jesus does something remarkable. He is willing to make him clean. And this shows by what he does. He stretched out his hand and touched him. Now, consider how Jesus healed many other people. He was laying his hands on other people to touch them, but it wasn't essential. It wasn't required for him to do this. For example, in Luke chapter 4, when he goes into the house of Simon Peter, in verse 39, it says, standing over her, he rebuked the fever and it left her. He simply says a word and it takes place. There was another man who sent and he had someone who was in need. And he said, all you have to do, Jesus, you don't even have to come to my house. Just say the word and he'll be healed. That's all you need to do. Jesus was able to simply speak and these things take place. This is what he did. This is what he's able to do always. The son of God is the one who created the world by virtue of what? His voice alone. He simply spoke. The one who is the image of the invisible God, the one through whom all things were made, is the one who spoke the universe into existence. His word alone is enough to create and to recreate and to heal. But Jesus didn't just do that. He wants to heal the man, but he wants to do more. And he wants to provide him with something he hasn't had in quite some time, which is human touch. For other people that Jesus would heal, he might touch them just uh, because that's part of the way that he would show that he cared about them and that he was healing them. He would lay his hands upon them. Not the only thing that people lay their hands upon people for, but he would touch them and do that. But there's something unique to this here. There's something unique to this. Which is, when you're a leper, what are you forbidden from doing? Being in contact with other people. You can't go near other people. And part of that is because those people may get your disease. So it's not just that you're forbidden and that's the rule. It's that you put them in danger when they touch you. They are sacrificing something to do this. I often think anytime uh, there's sickness in my family or I have it and we go to the doctor and you go in and you're, you're with them and you're going, you know, they're, they're right here with me. Are, are they prepared for, you know, maybe getting this disease that I'm about to have? And I guess they just cycle through all of them and they get them all and then they come back and, and they deal with it. But, you know, you're, you're in the presence of someone helping them when they're sick. It's going to come toward you. And Jesus knows this. And, of course, knows that other people would not have been in contact with this man. No one would touch a leper because it would make you unclean physically, perhaps, and ceremonially. And so these people were without human touch. And here Jesus is willing to do this. He not only touches him. The man doesn't come and touch him and he just lets him. But he reaches out to him. He stretched out his hand. This is emphatic on purpose. He stretched out his hand. He took the initiative. He reached out and touched this man. And showed in so doing that he deeply cared about him. And he was willing to enter into his life. And that he was showing compassion upon him. And this, of course, is how Jesus approaches us. We know this. We all, like sheep, Isaiah 53 tells us, had gone astray. We had turned each one of us to our own way. We run from God. God takes the initiative. We didn't go to God and say, will you send your son into the world? Instead, he came up with the plan from even before time began, to send his son into the world. God takes the initiative. He was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. We celebrate Christmas time this time of year. What is that a celebration of? It's the fact that God loved the world and sent his son. He didn't just make him available. He didn't say, you know, if you ask me long enough, I'll send him down. What did he do? He is the one who took the initiative. And this is what Jesus does. He reaches out and he provides everything that we need in order to be saved Not only in this case from a disease, but from our sins. Jesus loves people in this way. So he reaches out, he touches him, and then he speaks to him. And he lets him know the answer to the petition, saying, I am willing. I am willing. Do you notice here, verse 12, he says, willing. And verse 13, Jesus says, willing. But what's the difference? It's not just the you and the I. There's something missing. In verse 12, there was something that's no longer there in verse 13, and that's the word if. No longer is it a question of whether Jesus will do this, but now he confirms, I will. And he stands and he says, be cleansed. I am answering your requests. And what happens? Immediately, the man's leprosy left him. Immediately, the leprosy left him. Just like the beginning of creation when the word was with God and the word was God and he spoke and said, let there be light. And what happened? There was light. Let there be this, and those things came to pass. Immediately, this is what happened. When Jesus speaks and declares and wants something to come to pass, this is the way that it works. There was an exception when Jesus wanted someone to be healed in multiple phases, and he saw his blindness change. He could see men like trees walking, and then he uh, helped him again, and then he was completely able to see. But beyond that, when Jesus healed people from their diseases, they were healed like this. Immediately... This speaks, first of all, of course, of Jesus' power and his ability to do this. Jesus has authority over diseases. He has authority over leprosy. Again, the man is full of leprosy and instantly is made well. Completely solves the problem. But he not only does this in a way that would have been, uh, would have been total and visible, but it happens right away. And of course... Many of you know that there are those who would try to claim the power of Jesus Christ as coming through various types of healings uh, and other similar things, but that don't mirror this type of healing at all. And unfortunately in our day, many fraudulent healers will come and will do things that are either not visible or not immediate and say that they're using the power of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit in order to bring about healing when instead all that they're doing is scamming people. And here Jesus shows what a true healing actually looks like. His miracle was visible. It was instant. And as we'll see in a moment, it could have and would have been verified by the priest that this man went to show. So instead of a fraudulent kind of thing that passes for so-called healing ministry, Jesus himself actually does this. And this is the kind of thing ...that you want to write home about. It's the kind of thing that you want to tell everyone about. How could you not? Except Jesus doesn't want it to be done this way. And so Jesus not only heals this leprous man... ...but he then gives him instructions about what to do. And if we didn't know the story already... ...this would be a stunning thing for him to say. And he ordered him to tell no one. Tell no one. This is an instruction. Don't tell anybody... This is not the way that I would do it if I were Jesus, which makes it a good thing that I'm not. I would want everybody to know, do you not see the power that's on display here? Go tell everybody how much better your life is going to be. And you can even go talk to people now in person and say, hey, you know, I can shake your hand now because I don't have leprosy anymore. But Jesus says, tell no one. No one. Why does Jesus want him to tell no one? Well, we get some hints of what he doesn't want taking place. For example, in chapter 4 and verse 35, a demon is coming out of a man. Jesus is telling him to come out. And he says, be quiet and come out of him. Uh, Verse 41 of chapter 4, demons were coming out of many, shouting, you are the son of God. But rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak because they knew him to be the Christ Jesus wants to get the message out on his own terms he wants to be the one to spread things in his way and really part of the problem is that it was making it impossible for him to even go anywhere when the news was spreading to all of these people and not only that but as we'll see in a moment there would be a better way for the miraculous thing that he did to be validated and to be reported by people that he chose So don't tell anyone, but do something else instead. And he gives two commands. Go, show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, just as Moses commanded, as a testimony to them. He wants him to tell no one that he would naturally go and tell, but he does want him to tell someone, and he has a specific way to go about it. Don't spread the miracle indiscriminately. Instead, go show the priest. Go show the priest. So go and basically follow the instructions of Leviticus 14. This is an amazing thing because how many people in history would have actually been healed of their leprosy in such a way as to go show the priest, hey, I was leprous early today and now I'm completely clean of it. What would the priest think? What would someone think who saw that and heard that and found that? The provision for being ceremonially cleansed after being cleansed from leprosy would almost not even be needed for something complete like this because it almost never happened in all of Israel's history. And yet here Jesus says, go and show the priests and make the required offering, he says. Make an offering for your cleansing just as Moses commanded. Go do what the law required. It's almost ho-hum. It's almost like, you know, just this is what you should expect. Just go and do the offering just like you're supposed to. But what would this do for them? This would be a testimony to them, not just a testimony to the one priest, but surely they would tell each other and surely the word would get out, but it would get out from the priest and there would be a testimony to the fact that someone is here healing lepers. Someone is here doing the miraculous. Someone is here who is unlike anyone who's ever been seen before and someone is here who is doing the kinds of things that the Messiah was said to do. I referenced a few weeks ago a passage that's ahead of us in Luke chapter 7 when John the Baptist sends to Jesus. He's kind of questioning a little bit. Are you the expected one, Luke seven nineteen, or should we look for someone else? And in verse 22, Jesus answered and said to them, go and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. This is one of the indicators that the Messiah is here and the priests should get the message. And then the people would get the message. And rather than just being a popular scramble and word spreading by means, of, uh, by means of people just kind of talking in general, there would be a profound testimony that God has sent his Messiah son into the world. Go and testify to the priests and then they can let the people know. Jesus did want people to know, he just wanted them to know in a certain way. But here he has done the miraculous. He has done an amazing and a kind and a gracious thing to this man. Now again, we've mentioned before in going through this, this was a unique time in history in that before Jesus it was not usual for people to have these miraculous deeds done for them. Some prophets would do this from time to time. And even after Jesus, it would not be the expectation that people would be able to do this like he did. Certainly some, apro- some apostles were able to do this, and some had gifts of healing early in the church who would be able to do certain things like this. But this is not generally where we find ourselves. And so unfortunately, there are going to be diseases that keep us isolated. There are going to be diseases that don't go away. We will get sick and not be healed by someone like Jesus Christ. But it doesn't mean that Jesus can't do it, and it doesn't mean that God doesn't care And when he returns, he will deal with all of these things. And the Messiah's second coming will be like the first coming in that these things take place. But it will take place on a total scale. And all diseases and all sickness and all death will be completely eradicated for everyone who belongs to the Lord. Well, understandably, this news and Jesus' fame spreads. We don't see it here directly. But this man didn't exactly follow orders. And he started telling everyone what Jesus did. And so we have something else that takes place, which is Jesus is growing more and more popular. And that's what the second half of this passage describes for us, which is Jesus' response to his popularity. Jesus is growing in popularity. He is getting more and more famous and famous in a positive sense. People want to be around him and he has to respond to that. So what happens with this? The news was spreading in verse 15, we find the news about him was spreading even farther. He obviously had been becoming more and more well-known. Chapter 4, verse 14, news about him spread through all the surrounding district. At the end of chapter 4, uh, they were searching for him. The crowds were searching for him. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 5, the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God. And now we learn in verse 15 that the news about him is spreading even farther farther. It's almost unfathomable how popular he was getting, how quickly it was happening. So the news is spreading. And as a result, people were coming to him. The crowds were gathering. Large crowds were gathering. And they were coming to him for two purposes. They wanted to hear him teach. And they wanted him to heal their sicknesses. The same as it has been since he began his ministry in Galilee. They're amazed at his teaching. They want to hear what he has to say. They're impressed by its authority. They're impressed by its content. And then they want him to heal their diseases, their sicknesses. Understandably so. If you could go and have everything that you're, that's wrong with you healed right now, you would do that if it was that easy as simply going to someone who had that ability. And so the crowds are flocking to him and he doesn't reject them either. Uh, they're coming to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. The uh, implicit idea here is that he did continue to teach them and he did continue to heal but that wasn't all that he did it wasn't all that he did Jesus was very popular how popular mark one forty-five, giving this same account elsewhere tells us that because of his fame he could not even publicly go into a city anymore He couldn't even go in publicly. He had to sneak in if he was going to enter into a city because he would be recognized. The crowds would press around him. And he would have to do everything that they were asking him to do. At least if he was willing to do that. But Jesus understood that he had additional priorities. Now we saw this in chapter 4 at the end when it says in verse 42. When day came Jesus left and went to a secluded place. And the crowds were searching for him. And he came to him and tried to keep him from going to them. Uh, uh, Verse 43. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also. For I was sent for this purpose. So Jesus understands it's not his job to just stay in one place just to heal people. But he came to preach and the word needs to spread. So Jesus recognized that ...as a priority. He also recognized, as we learned in the last passage... ...that he needed to start to cultivate some other people... ...who could be with him, who could take the message out... ...beyond just his own self and beyond just his own life... uh, ...in his earthly ministry. But Jesus also had another priority... ...that he needed to maintain. Even in the midst of a busy schedule of ministry... Even in the midst of very great popularity, even though he was being fruitful and successful, and even though his teaching was powerful and people were listening and his healing was effective and people were being healed, Jesus was doing one more thing that he thought was utterly vital, which was he was praying. He was praying. Verse 16, but Jesus himself would often slip away to. The wilderness and pray this was his regular practice the language just indicates that he was doing this this was a continual kind of thing that he did he couldn't even enter a city publicly he was that famous but he would make sure that he got time to pray and he had to go that far away from everyone to pray to make sure that this was taking place now i think something should be obvious to us here which is that Jesus had certain things that he didn't even need to pray about. He knew certain things. He, uh, he was able to do certain things. And he had particular abilities and he had the absence of certain weaknesses. Jesus didn't need to go pray to confess his sins like we do. Jesus didn't need to pray for the help of the Holy Spirit who was already upon him. But yet he goes to pray anyway. This is a testimony, first of all, to Jesus' piety... That he was that devoted to his relationship with God, with the Father. That he valued it to this degree that he would slip away to the wilderness and pray even though his needs were much less than our own. This also then shows the vital importance of prayer. And that it's not enough to just do things for other people. It's not enough to just proclaim the word of God or to serve other people. And many of us do these things. We'll speak the truth to people and we serve other people. We interact with other people publicly. But does our private relationship with God measure up to those things? Now, in one sense, we will never be able to pray enough and we sometimes have that burden hanging over our head I haven't prayed enough I haven't done enough I haven't prayed long enough or I haven't prayed for everything that I'm going to do this day and going forward and we need to make sure that we don't place unbiblical standards upon our prayers but we certainly do need to ask if prayer is part of the way that we live before God do we have this same type of practice of saying I need to get away from everyone no matter what I'm doing no matter how righteously I'm doing it, no matter how effective it is, no matter how much people may want me around, I need to get away from everyone and do this. And this may mean leaving your phone in the other room or leaving yourself to go somewhere where no one can get in touch with you. This may mean doing this at a time when no one is going to contact contact you. It may mean putting yourself away from any type of distractions. And it may mean scheduling a time to do this. I understand that this is a very difficult thing to do in many ways. And there are constant demands upon us. But Jesus shows us here that there was an unlimited amount of ministry activity and personal interaction that he could have had. He could have literally never stopped doing it around the clock. And yet he saw it as so important, even lacking our own weaknesses that we have, to go and to pray that he made time to do this. And this should challenge us to do this ourselves. On top of this, of course, it just shows us one more thing about the greatness of Christ. That he loved the Father. That he was dedicated to him. That he was a model in every way, but not just a model, but the one who did everything righteously. And when we come to Jesus as an example, we need to come to him cautiously as an example, recognizing that he is an example indeed, but he is more than that. He is the only one who could do all that God asked. He is the only one who could heal people of their diseases. He's the only one who would rightly get this kind of popularity. He's the only one who had this type of authority. And he is the only one who would perfectly obey God and go to the cross as a perfect sacrifice. So when we come to Jesus, we should not just be impressed with him as one who has great power. We shouldn't just be impressed as a godly example of going to prayer. But we should ask fundamentally, is this Jesus the one that we know as Lord? And is this Jesus one that we say, I want to be like him, but I have not been like him. And no one ever has been. And he, therefore, is the only hope for me. He is the savior that I need. Not just my example, not just my teacher, not just the one who heals diseases, but the savior. And he is the perfectly righteous one who bore the weight of our sins upon a cross if we put our faith and trust in him to save us from those and he will remove them completely and just like this man who came to him and said if you're willing you can make me clean jesus showed that he was willing some of you perhaps need to look at jesus and say lord jesus if you're willing you can forgive my sins and you can know on the authority of the bible that jesus is willing and so all you must do is call upon the name of the lord And you'll be saved, forgiven of your sins and having the hope of eternal life. This is the kind of man that Jesus is. He cares. He has power. He has authority. He has perfection. And he offered himself as a savior for all. And all that remains is for us to exercise faith and to turn to him in hope in him alone. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this uh, great testimony of the power and love and authority and the godliness and greatness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. May all who are here trust and love him. May all of us who already know him rejoice in his power to save and in his power to take care of us in his authority over all things in this world. And may we honor and praise him for that. We ask these things in his holy name.